Amen. Hey, thank you, Danny, and thank you, worship team. Um, that was awesome, and uh, it's good to be here this morning. Um, like Danny said, my name is Trey, and if I haven't had the privilege to meet you, I'd love to do so after the service. We are in our second week of Why God, and um, last week, Pastor Lee did a great job of kind of continuing from Easter of tackling doubt, um, but this week, we're going to talk a little about something a little different. Before we do, I do want to reiterate what Pastor or what Danny just said. Um, I would love to see you guys at the picnic tonight. It is both of our locations coming together. And if you guys want the smoke and spike ball, I'll be there ready with a net set up. And so I challenge anybody who steps foot near there to a game of spike ball. Um, you know, it'll be a really good time, good food. Um, and I would love to see each and every single one of you there. Um, and uh, so uh, why God? Week two. Um, kind of the premise of this series is we're talking about some things that there are what I would like to call moments in life where you kind of just look in the mirror and then you look up and you go, God, why? Or why God? Like, I think we've all had those moments in some way, shape, or form, believer or non-believer, where we just look up to the heavens and like, God, why? Why God? And last week, Pastor Lee talked about doubt, but today we're going to talk about something. When I say this, it may sound a little bit generic, um, but today we're going to be talking about what I like to call insecurity. When I say insecurity, you may have what, you know, you think insecurity is. It may be the middle school talk about insecure about looks, it may be this or maybe that. But insecurity fleshes itself out in different ways and different stages of our lives. And so insecurity as a dad is real. Am I doing enough? Am I... Uh, am I a good enough dad? Should I not have said that to my son? How is that going to shape him and how he views himself later? I made a mistake today. I lost my cool a little bit on him. Is that going to shatter this? Is that going to do that? And so I become insecure as a dad when I lay my head down at night of, am I doing a good enough job? Or maybe as a mother, you feel the same way. Or maybe as a spouse, you're thinking, am I giving my spouse what they need whenever everything else is demanding more from me? And that insecurity can begin to flesh itself out, maybe as an employee, maybe as a friend. You insert the blank wherever stage you are in life right now as a student, as a child, towards a parent. Like, am I honoring my parents? Have I been a good enough parent or have I been a good enough child? Maybe you're an adult now and you think back on how you treated your parents when you were a teenager and that insecurity of like, I owe them a thousand apologies. And that insecurity can begin to flesh itself out in so many different ways. To the point where we go, why, God, am I still struggling with this at 20? Why, God, am I still struggling with insecurity at 30, 40, 50, 60, 78? Like, why am I still struggling with this? At I, should, I should be done with this, right? So we think. But I want to make the case this morning that as followers of Jesus, if you believe in Jesus in this room and you follow him with everything you have, we should be the most secure people on the planet. We should be. When I was in middle school or elementary age, I really thought I was going to play football. That was what I started to devote my life to in um, elementary. If y'all caught me outside at elementary playground, the, I, I mean, I threw for 500 passing yards every recess, right? Like I had 800 rushing yards, 35 touchdowns, and 500 passing yards. If a D1 scout was out there when I was in fifth grade, there's no way I wouldn't have gotten a scholarship in fifth grade. I thought I was going to go play 
quarterback um, for my middle school team, but I had a problem. I could not get the snap right. I literally just couldn't get it. And if you've played football, you know that that is a huge hurdle um, for some people. And we weren't running shotgun, right? I was under center, right? So my high school, my middle school, we were a wing T offense, which means we had three running backs in the backfield. And we had one wide receiver. Who, what did he do? Catch the ball? No, he blocked. Like that was our, that was our offense. And so I just couldn't get the snap and I, I got so discouraged and my dad made me finish the rest of the year. So I finished it. But at that point, I really began to take a liking towards basketball. And so I started to devote myself to basketball. I was 5'8 in seventh grade, maybe weighing 90 pounds. So I was tall, super skinny, and really uncoordinated. But I was really athletic somehow at the same time. How that works, I don't know. I just, I was athletic. I just looked sloppy doing it. And I, I started really to devote myself to basketball. I got pretty good at it. But my junior year, I had this coach step into my life. His name was Coach Willie Pons. He was, uh, for three years, he played with Larry Bird for the Celtics in the 80s. Um, and then he went on to play in, in Europe for a couple years um, and currently coaches in the ABA right now. But um, during the season, he was seeking out ministry. So the church and the academy I grew up in, they also had a Bible college attached to it. So he was going to the Bible college, trying to just get his degree and all this stuff. So he wanted to help out coaching. He was one of those guys that after practice, he'd be like, he's 60 years old. And he was like, hey, let's play pig or let's play horse. And I'm like, oh, I can take a 60-year-old. I've ne I never won a game against that man. Somehow he still had it at 60 years old with a horrible shooting form. Couldn't shoot past 15 feet from the basket, but he never missed, ever. Um, and I was like, there's a reason you played in the NBA, and I will never. So, but one thing he did do for me. He pulled me aside one day. I had a really, I was struggling shooting. I was in a shooting slump and I just stopped shooting the basketball altogether. He pulled me aside. And one thing about Coach Pons, he had no concept of personal space. He got right next to me, just hot breath and all, just right in my face. And he just started to talk to me. He just said, hey, listen, you don't just play the basketball, play the game of basketball really well. You're a good basketball player. And I want you to know, you're not just somebody who can shoot the ball. You're a shooter. And what do shooters do? I was like, they shoot. And he goes, now get out there and shoot the ball, shooter. And he just, every day, he used to just preach that to me. If you don't just play well, you are a good player. You don't just shoot the ball well. You are a good shooter. You don't just, you don't just do this. You are this. And so those insecurities when I was in those formative years of sophomore and junior of high school of, of basketball, it developed in me what I would like to call now irrational confidence. <laughs> Where if unless you prove to me you're better at me than basketball, I automatically assume I'm the best player on the court whenever, whatever court I step on. It's gotten so bad, I genuinely think if I stepped on the same court as Steph Curry right now, I might have a chance. Right? There, I know good and well I, I wouldn't, but I'm like, Hey, unless he proves to me otherwise, I, I think I could put up a good fight against him. It's this thing called irrational confidence. Where did I get irrational confidence? Where did I get that confidence? Where did that insecurity of I'm going to stop shooting the ball because I'm doing kind of poorly to, no, I'm going to shoot the ball because this is what I do. It didn't come from me just white knuckling my way to that. It came from a source of what I like to call identity. I found my identity in that moment. And a lot of times our insecurity is often linked to our lack of security in our identity. 
And why this matters, again, is because as followers of Jesus, we should be the most confident and unshakable people on the planet. Not void of moments of insecurity creeping in, but with the ability to call it out and find victory over it. In fact, this is the big takeaway from the message. If you're taking notes, write this down. That to defeat insecurity, we have to be secure in our identity in Jesus. To defeat insecurity, we have to be secure in our identity in Jesus. In 1 Samuel 16, which is where we're going to be this morning, a little bit of context of what's going on, we come across this story. We come across the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament where they were being solely led by God post-Egypt. And God had made them his, a chosen people since Abraham. They were his group of people. There was a covenant. There was a promise between the two of them. And post-Egypt, they never had a king. God was their leader, their provider, the one who made way. They had leaders, but God was the overall authority in the land. He was their king, their God. Now Joshua, you say, what about Joshua? What about Moses? He was, they were leading them, but they weren't king. All the other nations, though, had kings. And so we come upon this moment where the nation of Israel goes, God, you're not enough. We want an actual king. So the na- God goes, all right, pick a king. And they choose this man, Saul. Now Saul, when he first started out, was following God, had good, wise counsel around him, and, and Israel began to become the prominent nation in the day. Not void of enemies, but they, had, they were prosperous. Well, Saul began to buy into the hype. He began to get greedy. He began to discard wise counsel and began to turn against God. He became very narcissistic in his leadership to the point where God said, I'm going to remove you. But before I remove you, I will not allow you to pick the next appointee. I'm going to pick the next appointee. I left that in the hands of Israel once. I'm not going to do that again. And so I'm going to appoint somebody else. And so he tells this prophet Samuel to go to this man named Jesse. And the next king of Israel will be from his bloodline. So Samuel goes to Jesse, and he goes, Bring me your firstborn, the biggest, the strongest, the tallest, the one with the most king-like qualities. Which is where we pick up in verse number 6. 1 Samuel chapter 6, um, I think it's 16. What is it? 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse uh, 6. It says that, 1 Samuel, sorry, 16, verse 6. It says this, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely... The Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? God told me this was going to happen. And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest. But I warn you, but behold, he's just out keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him and get him, for we will not sit down until he gets here. It's a little awkward, just standing until he comes in from the field. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
Here we have David, King David, the guy who wrote almost all of the Psalms. We have David here, but he's not King David or author David yet. He is lowly, stinky, young baby David, the youngest brother who was the afterthought. And God tends to use unlikely people to do extraordinary things. And there are a couple of truths that I want to point out from this story that I think would help us confront insecurity and ultimately find our security and our identity in Jesus. Number one is this, that I am in God's story. You are in God's story. I am in God's story. Notice how in this story with David, it wasn't David seeking kingship. It wasn't David seeking the next best thing. He didn't have these wild dreams. He's just like, I'm going to make the most of where I am. My dad has me as a shepherd. I'm going to be a shepherd. My dad has me as this. I'm going to do that. And it was God in his story and in his narrative that came looking for David. And notice it wasn't even Samuel that had this epiphany. It was a, Samuel, go to Jesse. One of his sons will be king and I'll let you know who it is. So God had his hand and his sovereignty, his power and his will over this entire story. Again, David was just living obediently wherever he was currently. But I think a lot of times this is where we mess up. And I know I've taught on this before, but I think it's so prevalent to understand. This is where our theology gets messed up. Is that we think we're inviting God into our stories. But in actuality, God is inviting us into his story. You see, and what confidence that should bring us. That I want you to understand something. Before Genesis, right, which is not a science book, it's a history book of the creation of all things. That before Genesis, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, which gives us the assumption and the hypothesis that before anything, there was God. And so before humanity, there was all-powerful God Almighty. And God made all of this happen. And in his creation, creation abandoned him. And he stepped in to redeem all things through him. And now that he has ascended back into heaven post death, burial, and resurrection, he is redeeming all things unto him until he returns and redeems all of creation unto himself again. And so if you think, and you're, let's give you just a solid number, 110 years, hopefully and prayerfully, lifespan on this earth, that this all revolves around you, that's where our theology gets bent out of place. That this has all been God's story. And what confidence that should bring to you that you don't have to figure it all out. That you don't have to be all-powerful, almighty, even in your own life. That our identity is not found in the narrative that Trey Warren is forming on this planet. But my identity is found that there is a greater narrative going throughout the cosmos and it's God's narrative. And that he has invited me unto it and into it and I'm thankful that I get to play a small part in it. That's, that's, that gives me confidence in my identity that it's not my story. It's God's. Psalms 37, 23 says this, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. So we can have plans. But if 
God wants it to happen, here's the truth. You can't stop it. Because this is, again, God's story. And he's got it figured out. And he's going to do what he wants to do. And what, again, what an honor it is to be a part of that story. That should give us the most confidence that all creator God, your creator, that we get, he invites us to be part of his story. You ever meet those people in life where they're just so life-giving, they're so fun to be around, or at the end of your time with them, or you leave dinner from like getting a double date with them or whatever, getting coffee with them, you're just like, man, I want to be like that person. I'm th- so thankful and honored that I get, I get to get share my story with them, that I just get to share life with them. That is such a small, comical picture of the greater story where that God invites us, and we're like, I just, I'm thankful I get to know you. I'm thankful, I'm, I'm just thankful that I am just part of your story, my creator. And because he's your creator, I want to let you know something, that God doesn't make mistakes, which leads me to my second thought. Number one, we're in God's story, but number two, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You see, David wasn't the tallest. He wasn't the strongest. Shout out to all the men under six foot. David wasn't the cream of the crop. David was a dirty, music-playing, sheep-smelling baby shepherd. And God was willing to pass up on everyone else to get to him. For God doesn't make mistakes. Psalms 139, which David actually wrote, it says this, For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. God designed David for such a time as this. And that pattern still happens today, it still exists today, it's still true today, that God designed you for such a time as this. It is no mistake that you are alive in 2023. And whenever I start to think about, maybe I'm insecure about, like, should, like, I don't know what the future of our country looks like, I don't know what the future of the world looks like, should I have brought my boys into a place in a world like this, I have to remember that this, that God is the author of life. And that my boys were born in 2022 and in 2021 for such a time as this. That I was born for such a time as this. And they're going to thrive in ways that I would crumble in because of where they were born and how they were raised in a world like this. And I have to have confidence in that, that my boys, that I, that you, are, we are fearfully and wonderfully made for such a time as this. You've heard it said that, you know, there's a common phrase, and maybe you've said it whenever you're trying to shoot your shot and you think you had some game of like, you're one in a million. I love you. Let me tell you this, all those players out there, God one-ups everybody. He doesn't say you're one in a million. He says you're one in creation. That there has never been anybody like you on this earth, nor will there be anybody like you once you leave this earth. You are not one in a million. You are one in creation. And how secure should that be? give our, how much, how much security should that give our souls? I am part of God's story, but not just am I part of God's story, like, I am, I am unique on this planet. You are unique on this planet, which is why we are, we, we want to protect life as much as possible, because all life is unique and uniquely given. 
You are not one in a million. You are one in creation. And no matter how many mistakes you think you've made, I want to let you know you are not one. Because God does not make mistakes. So I'm part of God's story. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And number three, my life, your life has purpose. While David sat out there in the field leading sheep, he wrote songs. And he spent time with God in prayer. There was one story where he faced a bear one time and killed it through the strength of the Lord. And in his eyes, this was his destination. I'm just going to be a sheep keeper my whole life. But what he didn't know was that these seemingly meaningless days were actually the preparation for something greater. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And those steps of walking in them are not to give us praise, but to make his glory known. We just sang about it, that all the earth will shout his praise. Like every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so my life has a purpose now, which is to give him praise and point all eyes to him in everything I do. It is an eternal and heaven-focused, Jesus-centered purpose that goes way beyond you and bigger than you. And God wants you to be a part of it. Something I think a lot of Christians over-focus on is what is God's plan for my life? what it's true what's my purpose here on earth right like why why do we exist that's the age-old question why are we here and that leads to a lack of identity and it just leads to a, a if, I'm, if i'm being honest of anything goes type of mentality for if we do not have a purpose we do not have a reason for being here then it is there's all morality or anything can just get thrown out the window if there's no centrality of why we are here of our purpose. And our purpose is to make Jesus known to the nations. And so you are part of a bigger story. You are here uniquely, and God has given you purpose. You have a reason for being here. You're not a waste of breath on this planet. You have a reason for being here. How awesome is that? That our identity, we, we are starting to form an identity of like, we're going through an identity crisis. Why am I here? What is going on? What, what is my, okay, well actually my identity crisis is not as big of a crisis as it is if I actually look at the word of God, if I'm part of a bigger story, I'm actually here for a reason and I have a purpose in this planet, on this, on this planet. But it doesn't stop there. God continues to bless us with more security in our identity in him. For number four, for the cross has the final word that you are not perfect nor void of struggle. And God doesn't expect you to be that. There will be days where you mess up as a parent, as a child, as a friend, and as a spouse. There will be days where people stay, say things to you that cut deep. But let me say this. In all of those moments, in all of your shortcomings, in all of your, your backsliding, and all of that, I want to let you know this. No matter what you say over yourself, what you feel like your life is defined as or what you feel like people are saying about you, I want to let you know what the ultimate word says. The ultimate word, the ultimate authority figure does not see any of that. When he looks at you, if you are a follower of Jesus, all he sees is the righteousness of Jesus. And so on your worst days, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. On your best days, all he sees is the righteousness of Jesus. On your low days, it's just the righteousness of Jesus. 
And so I would much rather listen to the all-creator, all-powerful, God Almighty of the universe than listen to some random Randy and whatever he has to say about my life. Because his word is final. I don't care how long you've known somebody, if they can come to a conclusion about your life, what they say about you does not go, does not have the final word. For an infinite, all-powerful, all-being God who is much wiser than any person to have ever walked this earth says something different about you, listen to him. And he says, you are loved, you are chosen, and the righteousness of God covers your life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the, old, the new has come. I want to let you know this. When you started following Jesus, you're not a better version of your old self. You're new completely. Completely new. And so the cross has the final word. So again, let me just recap. You're part of God's story. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You have a purpose here on this earth. The cross has the final word. And my fifth and final thought, if the band wants to go ahead and make their way up, is this. That Jesus is Lord and Jesus is my Lord. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11 says this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one who controls kings and kingdoms can move kings out of kingship and kings into kingship. The one who chose David, the one who is Lord of all humanity and spiritual beings, one day everything will bow and confess that he is Lord. And not just an abstract Lord, but I want to let you know this, he is not an impersonal Lord, he can be your Lord. For he is not just king over what you see, he's king over what you can't see. And there's a lot you can't see. There are plenty of instances in the Bible where Elijah had the curtains of spiritual realm pulled back uh, in front of him. And he said, the demons and angels fight and are surround you more than you could even comprehend. That on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the curtain is pulled back and you see Jesus in all of his glory talking with Abraham and Elijah, that they were beneath him, bowing to him and, con and confessing that he is Lord. He is Lord of all. But he's not some abstract, impersonal Lord. He's your Lord. And how, how much confidence should that give us? I'm going to get really nerdy really quick. I love Lord of the Rings have loved Lord of the Rings. In fact, in second grade, I came home for 50 days straight. My mom kept track, and I watched Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, every single day after school. Loved it. Loved it. Loved the battle. Loved the goriness. Loved every single bit of it. There's a part in that movie, though. If you don't know anything about Lord of the Rings, here's what I suggest you do. Watch it. If you don't like it, watch it again. I love Lord of the Rings. So, there's a part in the movie where the enemy looks and is outnumbering the good guys 10,000. There's 10,000 of them, and there's maybe 1,000 of the good guys. And there, this guy, this elf, nerd, I know, this elf named Legolas is talking to the apparent king. His name is Aragorn. And they're having this back and forth. They're speaking in a different language around people that only speak English. And eventually Aragorn just says, then I'm going to die with them. And Legolas go, walks away. He's like, I'm not dying with these, with these humans. I'm an elf. A little bit of superiority. Again, watch the movie. Don't judge me. 
He comes back later when they're all standing on the wall and they're looking at the enemy and they know what's about to come. And Legolas walks up to him. He hands Aragorn his sword and he goes, you have not led me astray thus far. I should have no reason to doubt you. I'm with you to the end. And here's what happens. Aragorn, the king, leads this impossible battle and actually leads them to victory against all odds. That is a very small and nerdy picture of a greater picture that I'm trying to paint for you guys. That Jesus is king. And no matter what it feels like, no matter how much it feels like the hordes of hell have come against you, your family, your health, whatever. That if Jesus is king, that I should have said, I can say, and I will never doubt you. For where you lead me, I know that's where victory is. And it may not see it here, but I know one day that heaven will have the final say. And I know one day that my enemies, your enemies, will get cast into the depths of hell and they will be defeated forever and that you're going to make all things new. You're going to wipe every tear from our eye, that every imperfection on this planet and our bodies will be made new. And what a great day that would be will be and is coming soon and that's the king we follow who not just promises that but i know will deliver on that promise and what security that should give us in our lives that who are you i'm a citizen of heaven who do you follow do you follow this president do you follow this political party i follow jesus who's king of your life jesus Who has the final say in your life? Your mom, your dad, your sibling, your boss, Jesus. He is not just Lord of all, he's your Lord. And it's amazing and it's incredibly personal. And God specializes in using unlikely people to accomplish the possible if we are part of that story. Ruth, the Moabite widow, whose faithlessness allowed her to be part of Jesus' descendants. What? Yes, in her faithfulness, God still was faithful with her. And it was through her lineage and descendants that Jesus came. Gideon, weakest son of the family and the weakest tribe to lead a small army of 300 men to defeat 300,000 men. Esther, the nervous beauty pageant winner turned queen to lead the non-Jewish king to save the nation of Israel. Mary, not yet married teenager to carry the son of God. How about Matthew, a hated tax collector, hated by God's people, ended up dying for preaching the gospel. All of the disciples, fishermen, they were uneducated, dirty. All of them but one died preaching the gospel of Jesus. The apostle Paul, whose former name was Saul, a religious leader who killed Christians in the streets and families, went on to write the majority of the New Testament to future Christians that you and I now read together in churches today. So when you doubt why God made you, how he made you, when he made you, here's what I want you to do. With our confidence secure in our identity in Jesus, I don't think we need to ask the question, why God anymore? I think a better question that I'll ask you is this, what can God do through you and your security in him? Because if you find your security in Jesus with a confidence in him and him alone, 
this community, this city will be flipped on its heels because a few, you think about what the 11 did, the 11 disciples did. Just think about what a church can do today with the power of the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that you leave here secure, confident, not void of moments where you feel insecure, but in those moments where those emotions come through that you can go, ah, 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 I take captive every thought and I'm confident in Jesus Christ. So get away from me, enemy. Get away. I'm going to close with this story really quickly. There's a museum in St. Augustine that I thought was free. It's not free. Thought was free though. And I showed up on a date, broke, and they said, sir, it'll be $45 to go into this museum. I was like, it's going to cost how much? It's actually $45 per person. I'm like, what? I was expecting a dollar menu date, but nope. So I had to call my dad, ask for some funds just to see history. I had to ask my dad for some funds just to see something that was in the past. So Trey, what's the point of that little story? The point is, is this, that when the enemy comes against you and tries to remind you of your past, trying to remind you of these things, tries to remind you of what you've done, what you did, where you come from, what your identity used to be, here's what I encourage you to do, make him pay. Make him pay an outrageous amount. Trey, what am I making him pay? You're making him pay because he reminded you of where, you're, where you come from, how much you don't want to go back to that, and where you're going, who is king, and that you are not that, you are this instead. And that should give us security and confidence in our identity in Jesus. Would you stand with me? We're going to close out in song. We're going to proclaim the goodness and greatness of our God, who we are thankful and grateful has invited us into his story. Let's worship together.